Evening, everyone. Thank you, Gordon. If you uh, have a Bible, I could invite you to turn to James chapter 2. It's page 1214 in those Red Pew Bibles. And we're going to pick up from where we left off last week, which was at verse 14. And for anyone who's visiting, this is just us continuing our Keeping It Real series based in the, in the book of James. But we started last Sunday night by, by thinking about the kind of religion that God accepts, that God accepts as pure and as faultless, authentic religion. And we noticed how at the end of, of chapter one, James said that true religion, the kind of religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless, is the kind that is characterized by looking after those who are in need, widows and orphans, and also it is by keeping yourself from being polluted by the world. And when you come into chapter two, James continues along very similar lines, making it clear that believers in Jesus must not show favoritism towards the rich. And that when they practice, and this is James's phrase, royal law, and that royal law is love your neighbor as yourself. When you practice royal law, when you love your neighbor as yourself, you do right. And in many ways, James is keen that, that his readers would live out their faith in very practical and very active ways, that it goes beyond mere lip service, that it goes beyond mere mental assent. He, he wants words and actions to collide. He, he might even promote or endorse the slogan that actions do speak louder than words. But at the very least, and this is something that he develops as we're about to see, he would affirm the importance and the idea that faith must be active. Faith in action. James is kind of hot on the issue of what people claim and then how they live. And specifically Christian people. Is there a connection between belief and behavior or is there a contradiction? Is there a gap? Is there a glaring gap between what people claim and their deeds. Because if there is, James would probably want to echo that announcement on the London Underground, mind the gap. Mind the gap between what you claim to believe and then how you behave. Because if there is a gap, then that needs to be addressed. If you want to live out the kind of faith that is pure and that is faultless, that is authentic. Look at the first verse that we're going to read tonight together. It's verse 14. Because in what will become something of a kind of trademark of in his letter, James begins this section by asking some rather arresting questions. And so he says this, and it is a very arresting question. What good is it? My brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? It's not unusual 
or difficult to claim to have faith. It's not difficult to say you're a Christian. National surveys in Western countries continue to reflect high numbers of people who do exactly that, who claim to be Christians, who kind of check that box, who say in a few words and answer a question that affirms, yeah, I'm a Christian, but although faith is easily claimed, James is wanting to push that a little bit further. James is wanting to challenge people to search beyond the claims to see, well, listen, is, is there evidence to back up what you claim? Do their deeds. Does the way you live confirm or deny what you claim? And the stakes are high here because there's no doubt that as James asks this question, he assumes a negative answer. Can such faith that has no deeds Save? Can a faith that is mere profession save anyone? Not according to James. Claiming faith but lacking deeds appears to be, have been a pertinent issue for James, and so he writes into the context. I suppose I wonder is, is it still an issue? Is it still possible to claim or to believe to possess genuine faith? only to discover that you don't? Or to put it another way, is it possible to possess counterfeit faith? And if that is a genuine possibility, as it seems to be, what then are the marks of the real thing? What are the marks of genuine faith? Well, James, in kind of typical and practical and reasonably direct fashion, answers those questions for us. And I, what I want to do tonight, and I really do want to do this as far as possible, and you would expect me to do this, and I try to do this every time, is I just want to stick to the text. I just want to say what it says here. I don't want to veer off too far. I don't want to head off on too many tangents. I just want to stick to what James says here and let God's words speak way beyond my words. And so what James does is he, he starts with, by, sh by, by speaking about what is lacking in counterfeit faith. And then he identifies some signs of genuine faith. And for each, the negative and the positive, he gives two examples. And so let's stand together for the public reading of God's probing word. Verse 14 again, what good is it? My brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but they have no deeds, can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did 
when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Grab a seat. So, in the kind of first example of fake faith, James imagines a Christian who is without clothes and daily food. And, and I said it last week, and I'll repeat it again, G James was a master illustrator. He paints these graphic word pictures in order to enable his readers to kind of grasp what he's getting at. So, here's another one of his word pictures. Imagine a Christian who has without clothes or who is without clothes and daily food. And then he asks a question. He says, what, what do you do? Not what do you think. Not what do you sense. Not what do you believe. But what do you do in this situation? And if the answer is nothing, other than offer some nice words, go in peace, keep warm and well fed. What good is that? Second time he asks it, what good is it? And once again, we, we all know the answer to that question, James, that's no good. And so James repeats his point in his main point in verse 17. He says, In the same way, faith by itself, it if it is not accompanied by actions, faith minus deeds, it's just dead. It equals death. James is direct as ever. And the question is, is, is that example that James gives, is, is that illustration, is it perfectly conceivable? Are there Christians living in desperate need? Are there Christians living without adequate clothing and daily food? And the answer in James's context was that there absolutely were. And there probably still are. But here's an even trickier and more uncomfortable question. Is the response in this scenario ridiculous or perfectly conceivable as well? Do people who claim to be Christians and have the means to help simply speak and not act? James seems to have this expectation that genuine Christians will do what they can to practically help a fellow Christian in need. Now, that doesn't mean we stop there. As we all know, based on the story of the Good Samaritan, and here we're back to royal law, we're also called to love our neighbor irrespective of how unconnected we are to them or how different they are from us. 
But although there is a general obligation to help the needy, Christians do have a particular responsibility to help those within our Christian community. Paul echoes this in Galatians 6 when he says, let us do good good deeds to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. And James's point is, is pretty clear. It's that real faith acts, it serves, it cares for others. As one writer has put it, deedless Christianity is dead Christianity. Faith that has no impact, no effect on behavior is not authentic Christian faith. And so as James goes on, his next case study kind of drives his point home even more forcefully because he imagines, look at this in verse 18, he imagines an objector. Someone comes along and says, you have faith, I have deeds. It's almost as if he is suggesting there are different kinds of Christians out there. We all have our own way of being Christian. Some have this Others have that. You have faith, I've got deeds. Some say potato, some say potato. But this kind of distinction just doesn't wash with James. And so he says here, and he says it rather direct, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. Genuine faith will always be expressed in how we live. Faith is seen in deeds, and no amount of chin-stroking or verbal footwork will get round that. True faith is seen in action. Fake faith is invisible. And so James is on a roll here, and as I say, I'm, I'm just trying tonight to do my best to stick to the text. But James is on a roll And as he highlights the need to practice what you preach, to live out what you claim to believe, he injects this rather startling, shocking comment. He says, you believe there's one God good. Even the the demons believe and shudder. So the gloves are now off. And this belief in one God, that God is one, was the cornerstone of a biblical understanding of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Old Testament believers recited that every single day. Jesus himself quoted this as he gave that executive summary. Just before he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, he started by quoting, hear, O Israel, that the Lord your God is one. This is important, but you know what? However central and orthodox that truth may be, simply believing it is not enough. Why is it not enough? Why can it? Well, even the demons believe that. Someone has commented, there are no atheists in the demonic realm. Affirming certain right things about God is not enough. And note, note, these demons shudder. They're not unaffected by what they know about God. They tremble before God. But here's the point. Their behavior doesn't follow suit. And so we're back to the key issue. True saving faith is seen in action. And profession without deeds is incredibly suspect. 
Sam Albury in his commentary on James summarizes the verses we've looked at like this. Real faith is not merely sentimental, wishing someone well while doing nothing to help them. And it is not merely creedal, affirming something to be true, but which makes no difference to the way we live. Such things may be something, but they're not Christian. And they do not save. It's strong. But it's not a bad summary of those verses. And at this point, James then turns from looking at fake faith and giving a couple of examples of what fake faith looks like, and he now starts to talk about genuine faith. And once again, he provides a couple of worked examples by way of illustration. This time, he takes his worked examples directly from the Old Testament, and he draws attention to two people, Abraham and Rahab. You could not get two more different people, which in itself is a stroke of genius. And he starts with Abraham, the ultimate, the archetypal man of faith, who, as James says here in verse 21, is our father. In verse 23, he says, this is God's friend. So if James can use Abraham to prove the point he's trying to make, this will be impressive. This will be a kind of trump card for James to play if he wants to play trump card, if he wants to get people to really grasp what he's getting at, if he can illustrate this using the father Abraham, this is going to connect. And so in verse 20, James asks, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Let me give you some evidence, he says. By the way, based on the start of verse 20, there, there is a sense you'll notice that Unless you're foolish, you shouldn't really need evidence that faith without deeds is useless. But let's not dwell on that and just assume we all need a bit more persuasion. So James takes his readers and us back to some key moments, key events in Abraham's life. And he, kind of, he takes us back to these key moments to show how they're all connected. And the first concerns the time when Abraham was asked, or rather was told, to sacrifice his miracle son his miracle boy, Isaac. Humanly speaking, that made, as we all know, that made absolutely no sense for God to ask Abraham to do that, apart from the big question mark over sacrificing your own child, was the additional fact that it seemed to contradict everything that God had said for years he was going to do for Abraham as in promise to make Abraham a great nation, which kind of hinged on Abraham having a line of descendants. And we all know the story. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, got older and got older, and still there was no sign of kids. And one night, God restated his promise to Abraham, and he took him outside of his tent, and he told Abraham to look up, and he said, you know something, Abraham? Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And in Genesis 15, 6, and here is James taking us to another part of it. In Genesis 15, 6, we read that Abraham believed God, and as James then reminds us in verse 23 here of James chapter 2, as a result of Abraham believing God, he was, it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was considered right with God. He believed him. And again, as we all know what happened, Isaac was eventually born. But then in Genesis 22, 
God comes along to Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice your son. But in the end, he, he didn't need to. But we all know that Abraham was willing to. The altar was built. Isaac was laid on the altar. The knife was raised. And then God stepped in and provided a substitute. But here's what was so significant. Abraham really did trust God. His obedience demonstrated the genuineness of his faith. Or as James puts it in verse 22 here, his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete, not just in what he believed, but in what he did. And so James reaches the conclusion after he illustrates his point by using the example of Abraham. He reaches this conclusion in verse 24. You see, a person is considered righteous by what they do not, by faith alone. Now, if you were here the first week we started this series I made reference to this dilemma. Because you see, this is the point at which some people are convinced James contradicts Paul. They're at loggerheads on this issue. They're at odds with one another. Paul makes it very clear. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that anyone can boast. And so what you find is people take this verse from Ephesians 2, 8, in the first part of verse 9, and they look at James 2, and they verse 24, and they just say, see, the Bible's contradictory. Contradiction's all over the place. Now, there's a lot that, that could be, 10 past 8, there's a lot that could be said and has been said and has been written about this apparent clash, this inconsistency between these two key New Testament writers. And I don't have time to cover every issue or angle, but let me say this. And this, this is key for us to get. The works that Paul is referring to are the works of the law. Paul was speaking into a context where people were saying that in order to be really saved, you had to perform certain Jewish rituals, works of the law. And Paul was challenging that perspective. It's why Paul wrote in Romans verse 3, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. But Paul was not against good works. In fact, let me complete Paul's critical comments because I think some people miss this from Ephesians 2 verses 8 and verse 9. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, works so that no one can boast. Who knows what it says in verse 10, how Paul continues. For we are God's what? Workmanship, created in God to do what? Good works.
You see, I'm not so sure Paul and James would have argued about this matter. Yes, some people think that Paul taught what he said and then it was a bit distorted and James was kind of readdressing the balance and that could be very true as well, but I just do not think they were at loggerheads over this issue. I do not think there is inconsistency. It comes from the way each uses the word works in many ways. Paul is combating works of the law that were seen as necessary for salvation, but both he and James would agree, do you know something? Good works, deeds, are a natural, inescapable result of salvation, of a living faith in Christ. Let me put it like this. Paul makes it clear that we are saved by faith alone. James shows us that saving faith never remains alone. Can I say it again? James, because I don't have it up there, James makes it clear that we are saved by faith alone. Sorry, Paul makes it clear that we are saved by faith alone. James shows us that saving faith never remains alone. It is to be seen in godly deeds, good works, faith in action. Just look at Abraham, says James, whose faith was made complete by what? He did. Let's move on to the harlot. Because James also says, take a look at Rahab, verse 25. And as I've said, Rahab couldn't be more different from Abraham. He was a Jewish man. She was a Gentile woman. He was pretty rich. She was pretty poor. He was a patriarch. She was a prostitute. And yet both illustrate the same point. True faith is shown by actions. And I'm sure like James's initial readers, most of us know Rahab's story because James's readers would have known Rahab's story. That's why James referred them to Rahab. The story is in Joshua. The people of God are poised to enter the promised land, but they need to take the city of Jericho in order to get into the promised land. And so spies are dispatched to suss out the place. Word gets out the Jewish spies are in the city. And so Rahab hides the spies. She sends the Jericho search squad off in a wrong direction when they come knocking at her door. And then she allows the spies to get away safely in a different direction. Her actions align her with the mission of the Israelites. It's risky, but you know why she does this? She does it because she believes in God. In Joshua 2, 9 to 11, we read how she knows, this is what the text is, she knows that God has given the Israelites the promised land. She has heard about the Red Sea incident. And do you know what she declares? This is what Rahab declares. For the Lord, your God, is God. In heaven above and on earth below. And because she believes this, she acts. She lives in light of that reality. She demonstrates, she proves her faith by what she does. So what does James write in verse 25? In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she, here we go again, did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Faith in action, I act. And James finishes this section with a second conclusion. It reaffirms the first 
And again, it drives the point home in graphic deeds. He says in verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith minus deeds is dead. Unless faith is lived out, it is no more alive than a breathless corpse. Peterson captures it brilliantly in the message. The very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. Separate faith and works, and you get the same thing, a corpse. See, real faith, as James seems to explain it, is lived out faith. It's visible faith. It's active faith. There is not a glaring gap between what we claim to believe and how we behave. And as we get to the end of this relatively straight between the eyes text, I want to suggest that it does require, and I know we've already spent time examining ourselves, but it does require some more self-examination. We need to reflect on what we are doing and then how that relates to what we claim to believe. But the problem is that some of us will probably immediately see the inconsistencies. Some of us are just wired like that. We immediately begin to look at our lives and we just see all the inconsistencies and we fail to notice the ways in which we actually do express our faith in action. Please be careful not to give yourself too hard a time too quickly. Alternatively, some of us might immediately think of a few good deeds and good works that we have done recently and feel pretty okay. But the challenge this evening is to take time to allow God's word to filter through our thinking to take time to pray and ask God to help you respond honestly to his word. To reflect on what you claim to believe and then how you behave. And let's make sure that we express faith in action, because you see, a faith that works, a faith that works is a faith that works. A faith that works is a faith that works.